Hey, it's good to have you here. So we are finishing up the um, book of Nehemiah tonight, Old Testament book, and then we'll be moving on to some Christmassy kind of stuff. Um, and as we come to the end of Nehemiah, I think I warned you last week, chapter 12 was really the high point. And tonight we're going through chapter 13. Chapter 13, let's just say, is not exactly a high point as we think of it. So I'm going to show you a video just to kind of get you in the mood for tonight. Hey, Jesus. Sorry I'm late. Work was crazy today. No, don't get up. It's okay. Uh, yeah, just got a little bit behind. People are being crazy, you know. That's no problem, Chuck. I'm just glad. Uh, I'm glad I made it, too. Listen, let's get down to business. I have a lot of work here. A lot of requests. First things first, Pastor and his wife are at a conference. Keep them safe. Um, but, uh, not a fan of the assistant pastor. The less he preaches, the better. Uh, what else? Ralph, his wife, is getting a tattoo removed. It's a stupid college party way back when. You know how those things go. It's in a real painful spot. I'm not a fan of football here, but my friend is. And if I could have two tickets to take him to show him how cool I am so he'd be my friend some more, that'd be great. My dog Nibbles has a gimp leg. Chimney crickets. You know, now that I'm thinking, I could use a new jacket. I'm getting fuzzies all in this one. Please bless my sister, my mother, my father. Our father who art in heaven, my neighbor, Cindy. Hallowed be thy name. Can you sort of train my church to clap on two and four, please? One and three, this is not disco, people. This is serving the Lord. The guy who brings in my shopping cart from the thing. Something I can do to get a raise. Can you read what I wrote here? I think I was, I was dreaming. Plus the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Secretaries, bless their secretaries thy kingdom, thy kingdom come. And that's what bothers me about my mother. Hey, look at the time there. That's, uh, uh got to get going there. Jesus going to wrap this up and say amen. Amen. Uh, it's been a pleasure praying with you. It's fine evening. I'll be talking with you. Have a good day. Yeah, so I show you that video because every time I see it, I think to myself how, um, how disappointing, how unsatisfying, uh, how worrisome uh, that is. And I always, every time I watch it, I always think like, you think there was ever a time in that guy's life when he was on fire for the Lord, when his prayer life was more than just about him and what he wanted, uh, where it wasn't so shallow and so disappointing. And I say it because as we come to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah tonight, it feels to me a lot like that video. Uh, very unsatisfying, uh, very disappointing, uh, very worrisome, and a little bit like, I wonder if there's any of that in us. So uh, anyways, with that really super exciting uh, theory in mind, let me pray for us and we'll dive into chapter 13. Father God, I thank you for uh, bringing us here tonight. And uh, I pray for us as we uh, hear your word, even um, a difficult uh, chapter in scripture, that uh, you will uh, speak to us, that you will instruct us. And Father, I believe that there's something very important that you have for us to learn, and I pray we'll learn that, not just in our head, but in our heart tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 
Amen. So the book of Nehemiah, uh, open up your Old Testament, it's about halfway through, but chronologically, it's at the end of the Old Testament, it's kind of at the end of the historical books, it's the last, one of the last glimpses we get before 400 years of silence and then the coming of Christ, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. The story takes place about four, 450 years before Christ uh, walked this earth. Um, Nehemiah is man. He was a Jew. He was part of uh, Israel. They had been in exile for 70 years uh, because of their unfaithfulness to God. Um, they had been um, d- uh, basically conquered by the Babylonians, who were then conquered by the Persians. And after 70 years of exile, the king of Persia told the Israelites they were free to go back to their homeland if they wanted to. Uh, not a lot of them went, but there were basically three waves who went. There was people who went back uh, under Zerubbabel and those who went back under Ezra. And in those, they uh, they rebuilt the temple. They began to work on the city. They worked on the walls. Uh, the walls didn't get too far, and they came down again. And then 13 years after that, uh, Nehemiah is in Susa. He is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, this is a very, very important job. And what we do know about Persian kings is that one of the most trusted people they would have in their staff would be the cupbearer. The cupbearer's job was to make sure that the king didn't get poisoned, what he ate or what he drank. And since that was the mode that you usually got rid of powerful people, um, the king had to absolutely trust the cupbearer. And because of this, the cupbearer was often a, a trusted advisor for the king. All of this is probably true for Nehemiah. Now we know that, uh, that Jerusalem is a, is a thousand miles away, and one day we're told that his brother comes from Jerusalem, and he reports to Nehemiah about the condition of the city. It's in, it's in a terrible situation, and this is not new to Nehemiah. He knows that this has been going on, but for some reason this time, uh, God really speaks to him, really touches his heart. He becomes very burdened for these people who, who live a uh, thousand miles or three months of travel away. Most people that probably whom he's never met. So he begins to pray and he begins to fast and he begins to plan. And he does this for four months and then he goes to the king and he says, I would like to go to Jerusalem uh, and I would like to rebuild the wall. I don't know anything about rebuilding walls, but you know, apparently he's got a plan. The king says, yes. He goes to Jerusalem. He checks out the walls. Indeed, they're in in dire straits. And so he comes up with a plan. He gets everybody together. He gets them organized. They all start working on the wall. They have opposition from outside. They have opposition from inside. Um, And in 52 days, really in a miraculous way, they finish the wall. The wall's up. And in chapter 12 that we looked at last week, they celebrated together. They were full of joy over this. And then right after that, at the end of chapter 12, there's what we might refer to as a, a bit of a reformation amongst the people. So they've, they've rebuilt the walls, they've rebuilt the temple, they're rebuilding the city uh, physically, but now they are being rebuilt spiritually as well. It's a reformation, if you will, and they're going to order their lives around God and about around his word. And at the end of chapter 12, they make three very specific um, commitments, if you will. They commit to keep the temple holy, to keep the Sabbath holy, and that they as a people would be holy. And when we use that word holy, we don't simply mean spiritual people. It's the idea of something being set apart from everything else for an uncommon purpose. And so when we say that the temple is going to be kept holy, what it means is it will be used 
exclusively for ministry to people from God. That's where his presence dwelt, where sacrifice and ministry takes place. When we talk about keeping the Sabbath holy, we're talking about that one day out of every seven being set aside. It will be holy. It will be different from the other six days. When we talk about the people being holy, same thing. These are people who would be set aside um, for, from ordinary life in order to serve God. And so these are the commitments they make. And then we come to chapter 13, and uh, more than one commentator has said, if they were writing the book, they would have ended the book in chapter 12, verse 43, on a high note. We looked at this last week. It says this, and they offered great sacrifices that day as they're, as they're dedicating the wall, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. You get the idea? They're, they were happy here. And the women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. And it seems like a great place to end the book, but it doesn't end there because the God who gave us chapters 1 through 12 also gives us chapter 13. And one of the things a lot of commentators will say is it feels like a real disappointment, a real letdown. I don't know why, but this week I, I decided to Google like, what, is, what do people generally find to be the most disappointing movie of all time when it comes to the ending, right? I was really intrigued. And on every list I saw, um, the number one disappointing ending was from the movie Titanic. Okay. Now, I never saw the movie Titanic, but I think it involves a ship sinking, lots of people dying, and then in the movie, I think there's a piece of jewelry thrown into the ocean later. I don't know. But people resoundingly have said they, they just find it so disappointing, and the same thing is often true when you come to the end of Nehemiah. If you don't understand why it's actually so important. So we have in Nehemiah chapter uh, 12 and chapter 13, what we might call a circle of reformation. I know it's a weird word. I couldn't fit reformation on one line, so now it's two words. Uh, the cycle of reformation. One of the things that we find out in chapter 13, verse 6, is that um, for a period of time, Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem. In verse 6, it says this, Now while this was, this was taking place, he says, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And so here's kind of the timeline we know a little bit. He, he goes to work in Jerusalem. He spends 12 years rebuilding the wall and then rebuilding the city and the people. And then after 12 years, he returns uh, to Persia, where he serves the king in that capacity as cupbearer. And then sometime later, he returns to Jerusalem again as governor. Now, we don't know if it was six months, if it was six years, but we do know that when he returns, all these people who had made these promises, this, this great reformation, that in fact, they've abandoned that reformation. They've abandoned uh, the promises that they made. And in the text, we find just three of, of my guesses, probably many examples. So the first example is, is the temple itself. Now, after the celebration in chapter 12 that we looked at last week, and the temple's been dedicated and everyone's so excited, the people gathered together and they promised to support the work of, of the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 12, verse 44, it says this, kind of some technical stuff. Now on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms out of the, of the temple. So the complex has many rooms in it. Uh, the storerooms where they keep the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes and, and to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So the idea is this. They're going to collect offerings, collect grain, collect uh, 
all the things that they need to supply the work of the temple on a day-to-day basis. And they've all promised we'll do this and we will not neglect this. But while Nehemiah is away, we read this in chapter 13, verse 4. Now before this, uh, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, that name may sound familiar because that was the, that was the Tobiah who stood at a distance earlier and said, and he mocked the Jews as they were building the wall and said, you know, if a fox jumped up on that wall, the whole wall would come tumbling down. He's an enemy of the Jews. That's the Tobiah we're talking about here. He said, prepare for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of grain and the wine and the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So let's just break this down. So Tobiah is related to this Jewish priest who's in charge of all the rooms at the temple. And somehow this Tobiah and Eliashib are related to each other. And so what Tobiah gets this priest to do is to, to clear out some rooms in the temple complex in this holy building for God. And he sets up his, I think, his business office, if you will, uh, in there because it's really prime real estate in the middle of the city. And he does business from there. And, and these rooms were meant to store supplies for ministry and food and grain for the workers and and these things are all removed. They're all tossed out so that Tobiah can move into them and do his own business. It's hard to explain how unbelievable and inappropriate this is. It it would almost be like, say as a church, um, this building that we have built for the use of ministry, if, if for some reason we allowed somebody who's not a believer to move into the offices upstairs and to just take over and to begin selling, yeah, I don't know, insurance or cell phones or yeah, I don't know what it is, and he takes over the office and now we can't answer phones and we don't have offices, we can't do counseling up there or study, you know, any of that kind of stuff like that. All of that's gone. And this is what happens. So rooms have been abandoned in the temple so that this guy can do business. And then Nehemiah comes back. And Nehemiah says, and and when he found out, he says, I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, I don't know that this room was on the second floor, but I always picture it on the second floor because it feels much more satisfying to imagine Nehemiah throwing all the furniture out the second floor window, right? Like people are just outside and all of a sudden a desk comes flying out and a filing cabinet comes out and, and, and Nehemiah just casts them out. It's a little bit like what happens 400 years later when Jesus is going through the temple complex, right? And he sees people who are doing business in a place where ministry should be taking place. And Jesus drives them out. In verse 10, he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. That means they're not getting paid. And that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each gone to their field. So there's no ministry leaders left. So Tobiah's come in. He's taken over part of the place. There's no more room to store things to pay workers. So workers have gone home to work on their own fields because they need to provide for their families. And the temple system is collapsing. There's no supplies. There's no staff. And so Nehemiah steps in, throws some furniture out the window, and and gets control of the situation. And so he gets the, the temple restaffed and restores ministry. And we kind of have this picture here of a, of a reformation and then, if you will, a regression and then a repentance and then 
a repeating of the cycle. There's a second example that we get. Not only the temple, but the Sabbath. Another promise, another reform that they had made. Now, the Sabbath is basically this, this one day out of seven that we set aside, that was given to us by God to set aside with a purpose. And the purpose is to rest, uh, one day out of every seven, to enjoy God, to enjoy the life that he's given us, you know, to slow down because God knows that, that given our nature and given the world we live in, things could spin out of control very easily and we never slow down and we never enjoy God and we don't enjoy life. And so God has given us this command. Now, I find this whole thing just a, a kind of interesting that God has commanded the, the Israelites to take one day out of seven to slow down and they just resist. Like, why would you resist that? Why would you resist? Why would you say, no, God, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to slow down. I don't want to spend a day with you. I just want to, I want to push forward. But this is what they do. And in fact, for Israel, this was a long, ongoing struggle for them. It's part of what contributed to the exile in the first place, was this pushing back on the Sabbath. Now, in Nehemiah, the Jews once again have a reformation. They've had so many of these in which they once again promise to keep the Sabbath. In chapter 10, verse 31, it says this, and if the, if the peoples of the land, this is their pledge, if the peoples of the land, that's the surrounding people, the Gentiles, bringing goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We're going we're gonna to set it aside. It's going to be for God. Now, of course, the Gentiles who live in the surrounding cities, they, they don't observe the Sabbath because they don't worship the Lord. And so they would come to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And apparently once Nehemiah is gone, they're like, this is our chance. And so they would come into Jerusalem on the Sabbath and, and set up their booths because they're going to sell some stuff. And, and here's their advantage. None of the Jews' businesses, they're not selling on the Sabbath. So the Gentiles kind of have an, an, an edge here. So they, they come in, they set up, they're trying to sell stuff. And at first the Jews resist. You know, they're like, no, we're going we're gonna to keep the Sabbath holy and I'm not going to buy anything on the Sabbath. But then very slowly, because this is the way it tends to go, they begin to compromise, right? So and now I don't know how this worked, but maybe one day there's a, on the Sabbath, there's a, there's a Jew and he's, he's, he's walking across town. He's got to get somewhere and, you know, he sees a kiosk and he's like, you know, I, I haven't had breakfast. And so he thinks, you know, what's the harm? God knows my heart. I'm just going to stop and get a breakfast burrito really quick. And just, and I say that like I discovered breakfast burritos this week, by the way. Like they're really, really good. But anyways, he gets a, right, so he gets a breakfast burrito. It just seems like a, like a thing. It's just fine. And a couple days later, he's like, you know, I mean, I had a breakfast breakfast burrito. I bought it. I didn't die. And, you know, maybe he has a smoothie the next day and the next week he's like, hey, it's a good sale on iPhones and flat screen TVs. And suddenly it's uh, Sabbath trips to Costco with eight carts, you know, kind of thing. And it's all of Jerusalem is turned into a swap meet at this point. And then Nehemiah returns. You just picture him coming into town. It's a Sabbath. There's swap meets going on. And in verse 19 of chapter 13, Nehemiah is going to take care of this. So he says, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. So he gets there. Everything's out of control. The Jews have broken this reformation. He's going to get control. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. 
And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So, you know, they, they come, they're going to they're gonna sell stuff on the Sabbath, the gates are closed, so they, they camp out. And then Nehemiah warns them, and he says to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah, by the way, we're going to kind of start to get this picture. Nehemiah's getting a little grumpy, getting a little grouchy in chapter 13. And I think there's something up with that. But he comes and he kind of threatens violence and he cleans up the act. There's reformation. We're going to keep the Sabbath. There's regression. They don't. There's repenting with Nehemiah's help and repeating again. And then we get one more example, example three, which is we have the temple and the Sabbath, and then there's the people. So the Jews had made a promise to God in chapter 10, and uh, we read this. They said, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So a little clarity, a little background on what's going on here. Uh, the, the New Testament, the Bible does not forbid marriage between different races, and some people look and think that's what's going on. That's not what's going on. The Bible does, however, warn us against marrying non-believers about being unequally yoked. And why? Well, because this causes things like spiritual compromise. Uh, you can go back to the life of Solomon and see how that works out. It usually creates uh, tension, conflict in a marriage, difficulties, and often and compromise. And this is something that Israel saw again and again. Now, by chapter 13, and again, we don't know how much, if it's six months or six years later, they've already broken their promise once again. In verse 25, Nehemiah comes back and he says this, and I confronted the Jews and I cursed them. Okay, so he's just, ha I don't know if it's a bad day, if it's a bad year. He says, I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. All right, so he's just, he's mad. He's losing it at this point. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, and basically he just makes them take the same oath they gave willingly back in chapter 10. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So what's really going on here? Well, in chapter 13, verse 1, we read a little bit more. It says, now on that day, this is right after they celebrated the, the building of the wall. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. So they, they gather together, the priests and Levites read the word of God. In this occasion, they happen to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 23. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, these are people from two different surrounding nations, should ever enter the assembly of God, that is, the, the worship time that they have. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So let's, let's just break this down a little bit and what's going on here. So they, they, they read on this occasion from Deuteronomy 23, and they, they're very zealous to, to put the word of God into action in their life. Unfortunately, what they do is they take the passage out of its context and they misapply it to their situation. So it's not just the church today that has a tendency to do that, right? We always talk about, oh, all the people who take the Bible out of context. They were doing it even back in Nehemiah's day. So let's think about the context a bit. The context is, is the exodus of the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt to being free people who live in the promised land. And they're on the move. They're moving from Egypt to the promised land. And on this, this trek, they need to pass through the territory of two countries, the Ammonites 
and the Moabites. And so they send a messenger to the king of the Ammonites and the, and the Moabites, and they say, we're going we're gonna to pass through your territory, but as we pass through, if we, if we take any food, if we take any water, we will pay you for anything that we use. We will reimburse you, right? So it won't, won't really cost you anything. Now, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they, they've heard about the Israelites, and they've heard about their conquests, and they have this, this, this notion that God is with them. So they say no to the Israelites. They say, you may not pass through our territory. But in the back of their minds, what they have to be thinking is, we don't know that they won't do it anyways because God is with them. And so they're kind of worried. What if the Israelites decide to come through anyway? How can we, how can we defend ourselves? How can we stop them? So they find a, a prophet of questionable character. His name is Balaam. And they hire Balaam and they say, we know you have, as a prophet, you have influence with God. So we would like you to call down a curse on the Israelites just because we're not sure that they're not going to come through anyways and maybe destroy us in the process. So we'll give you lots of money if you call down a curse. Well, Balaam says, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And part of the reason he says I'm not going to do it is because he can't do it. He, he, he knows that this, it doesn't work that way. So he comes up with another plan instead. He says, I'll tell you what, you don't need God to curse them. You just need to get the Israelites to sin. And if you can get them to sin, then they'll be on the outs with God and everything will be great and you guys will be fine. So they say, well, how can we get them to sin? And Balaam says, I got a great plan. Just get your unbelieving kids to marry their believing kids, right? Just be like, hey, we, gotta, you know, we have a daughter and she's beautiful and she's 4.0 and you know, she's gonna be great and your son couldn't do better than her. And, you know, we've got a son here to marry your daughter. He really loves her and just get them to marry and here's the whole plan. So that when they get married and when they have kids, there's so much spiritual tension that compromises happen and the whole faith breaks down and this is their plan. This is what they decide. We'll ruin the nation of Israel from the inside out. We'll eat at their faith, and, and, and we'll get them to compromise in this way. So God has a judgment for the Ammonites and the Moabites, and that is that they must be spiritually kept separate from Israel for obvious reasons. They're not believers. They're only looking to infect Israel, and this is God's judgment. However, just to be fair, God always provided a way for foreigners to become Israelites if they place their faith in God, if they would go through the proselytizing process, they could become Jews. And in fact, God had grace for Moabites like Ruth, who becomes the great-grandmother of David, and she's part of, of Jesus' genealogy that we'll look at in a few weeks. So in Nehemiah, though, here's what, here's what happens. They read the passage, and it's about Moabites and Ammonites, but they take the prohibition, and they relate it to all unbelievers. They just they misappropriate the passage and say, you know what, we won't have anything to do with all, all unbelievers, period. And, and this is what some commentators say is the beginning of legalism in, in Israel. In fact, there are some commentators believe that Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of the, the proto-legalists, if you will, by the time we get to chapter 13. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. Legalism is basically what they're saying is this. We're supposed to keep ourselves spiritually separate 
So we'll really separate ourselves. Not just the Ammonites, not just the Moabites, but, but no foreigners will be allowed to enter the assembly of, of God's people. And not only will we not allow them to assemble here, but we won't talk to them just to be safe. Won't talk to them. We won't get anywhere. We won't live near them. We won't do business with them. If they're hungry, we won't feed them. And this is, this is legalism. As one commentator put it, in reformations, it's not uncommon for some people to try to become more holy than God. And that's a little bit of what's, what's happening here. In fact, 400 years later, Jesus is continually confronting legalism as he's ministering. And so we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah. They've made all these promises. They've broken all these promises. Nehemiah comes back to town. He kind of cleans up the act. But one of the things that commentators note in chapter 13 is how Nehemiah's prayers have changed. In the beginning of the book, you have these, these big, uh, broad, bold prayers that Nehemiah prays, right? You know, God, work in Jerusalem and rebuild your walls and rebuild your people. And we pray your glory comes back to the area like these huge prayers. But by chapter 13, there's a really different tone to his prayers altogether. In verse 14... He prays this. He says, Father, remember me. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. He doesn't say, God, remember us or remember Jerusalem or remember the Jews or remember the Israelites. He just says, remember me. How did he go in chapter one from, for praying, even confessing the sins of all Israel and trying to get them right to just, just remember me, God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And in verse 22, he prays this, remember this also in my favor, oh my God. Right again, see this? For me, for my favor, oh my God, and, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. He says, spare me. That doesn't sound like someone who has a lot of confidence that all the work that he's done is gonna stand, does it? This sounds like a guy who's, who understands his, his impotence. Like he can be a governor and he can legislate obedience, but he can't change hearts. And so he simply asked God to remember him and to have mercy on him. It reminds me a little bit, the tone feels like the video we watched at the beginning. It's just all about him and protect him and take care of him. And his whole world is just kind of, kind of evolved down into just him. Here's how one commentator paraphrased uh, his prayer. Remember me, Lord, because at least I tried. Like, isn't that a great prayer? Like, didn't that tell you something? At least I tried. These people made promises, and then they broke them, and they've promised again. And now, God, I lack confidence that they're going to not just do the same thing again. And so we come to the end of chapter 13. The Jews are on this cycle. They, they reform. They break this process. It goes over and over again. And so the question becomes, as we, as we finish the book of Nehemiah, what do we, what do, we do with it? D.A. Carson put it this way. These are some really encouraging words as we come to the end of this book. He said this. Basically, the message is this. There's sin at the beginning, there's sin in the middle, and there's sin in the end. Woohoo! Isn't that exciting, right? right? In other words, he's just saying that's life in the Old Testament. Sin at the beginning, sin in the middle, sin in the end. And you can just go through the Old Testament. Right? Think of Moses, a, a great man of God. But at the end of his life, he doesn't enter the promised land because of his, his sin. Right? 
And, and then comes the period of the judges. So we have these cycles of the judges, right? The, the people are following God and then they stop following God like in Nehemiah and then they get in some kind of trouble because they're not following God and then they cry out to God, God, please rescue us and we'll never, we'll never do that again. And then God raises up a judge, raises up somebody to save them and, and, and then they repent and, and then they reform and then they stop you know, keeping their promises, and then they get in trouble again because of that, and then they cry out to God, and we have these cycles, and the judges just again and again and again, but each cycle, they just sink a little lower into their sins, so the, by the end of judges, it says everyone does what is right in their own eyes, not in the eyes of the Lord, and so the people say, you know, this isn't working, and, and judge it, Moses didn't work for us, we need something, oh, well, judges, and that doesn't work for us, and we need, well, here's what we need, we need a king, if we had a politician, if we had politics, that would solve our problems, right, and so they, they, they want a king, and they get Saul as their king, and Saul doesn't work out well, and so they think, well, the answer is we need another king, we need another election cycle, we'll get it right, eventually we'll hire somebody as king, who will do the job and so God raises up his own king his name is David he's a man after God's own heart right but then it's not too long and David commits adultery and David commits murder and it's this relentless cycle in other words Nehemiah they'll say is just simply part of the Old Testament storyline there's sin at the beginning and there's sin in the middle and there's sin at the end there's no answer here in Nehemiah right it just highlights the bad news What's the bad news? We can try as much as we want to solve our own problems. We can, we can try to order society in a way to take care of the problem, but our problem is our sin, and our problem is our heart, and you can't legislate that. You can't fix that through legislation. So what do you do? What is the remedy, right? And here's what we know that they couldn't quite get back then uh, because we're on this side of the cross and that is that the remedy is faith right god gives us the bad news so that we're ready for the good news and the good news is the gospel the gospel is this we have a, a problem the problem is a problem that we cannot solve and we have proven that we cannot solve it we've tried every way to solve it. We've, we've tried to do it through culture. Our culture today still thinks that, that if we throw enough money at something, enough education at something, that we can solve all of the world's problems. But the problem that we need to deal with is our sin. And we are powerless to do that. What we need is a new heart. What we need is a new mind. What we need is spiritual power. What we need is the good news. We need the gospel. What we need is a savior to do for us what we cannot do. Why? Because the Bible says we were dead in our sin. Dead people can't solve their problem. And so we needed a savior. And that's what we get. That's what we get in Jesus. In fact, the first line of the New Testament is this, the book of the genealogy of who? Of Jesus Christ. Right, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's connected to the Old Testament. God was always working on this plan. He would make a point. He would show us that we need good news, and then he would bring that to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the ultimate king. Jesus, the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate temple. And Jesus came along, and he would walk, he would walk the streets of Jerusalem, that, that city that Nehemiah helped rebuild. And Jesus would be able to touch the wall 
that Nehemiah, it wasn't quite as high uh, in Jesus' day as it was uh, in Nehemiah's day, but he could still, you can actually still go there today and see that wall and, and, and you can touch it. And he would walk along those streets and he would preach the gospel. He would preach the good news and he would redeem all who would place their faith in him. And so this week as I was studying through Nehemiah chapter 13 and just trying to make my way through the book, I, I, I got to the end and I remember thinking like, how do you wrap up a book like Nehemiah? How do you wrap up this concept that there's sin at the beginning and sin in the middle and sin at the end? And of course the answer is simply this. I, I, would, I would just say that we need to trust Jesus, right? That we need to believe in the gospel. That if we could just say one thing, that's what we would say as we come to the end, that what we need is to trust Jesus, to have faith in him. Of course, I can never leave well enough alone, and so I actually wanted to express it two ways and then ultimately three ways, but just think of it this way. We need to trust Jesus alone. That's the first thing. We need to trust him alone for our salvation. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Right, so those are two really important words. What it means is to fa uh, have faith in Christ is, is to trust him. It's to trust him, and it says that when we, when we trust him to solve our, our sin problem, then he gives us a gift, and that gift is called grace. He gives it to us. Paul explains it more thoroughly. He says, for it's by grace that you've been saved. When you believe, if I can paraphrase, when you believe in Jesus and you trust him alone for your salvation, you received grace. And this is not your own doing. Again, just a reminder, you'll never make it happen on your own. They've tried all through the Old Testament. Here's the one thing that they've proven. There is no way to get right with God apart from God doing the work for you. So it is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. So no one in this room can say, well, I got saved because I was a little bit better than you. We were all dead in our sins. We were all the same. And God gave us the gift of grace. And so what Nehemiah doesn't know quite yet is that in about 400 years, God is going to come in the flesh to this earth and be born of a virgin, to be born without sin. And he would walk, walk the streets of Jerusalem and Judea and he would, he would preach the good news. He would teach the truth about God. He would allow himself to be betrayed, to be falsely accused, to be arrested, to be nailed to a cross. It was not plan B. It was always God's plan A for us. No one took his life from him. He gave it willingly. He suffered. He died on that cross. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin. And he conquered death. If this sounds familiar, it's because I say it every single weekend. It's the good news. He rose from the dead. He appeared to many. He ascended to the right hand of God. And there he intercedes on our behalf. And whenever we place our faith in Christ, we receive that gift of salvation. And it's not just something that God gives us one day. In 2 Corinthians, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We are new. The old has passed away. The new has come. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new mind. My question is, have you trusted? Have you trusted in Jesus alone? But we don't just trust in Jesus alone for heaven one day. We also need to trust Jesus constantly or, or continually or moment by moment. So we don't just trust him for heaven one day. 
But part of what it means to trust Jesus is to trust him today. In every situation, in every challenge, in every heartache, in every success, in every fear, in every decision, in relationship, in every temptation. We don't just trust him one day, we trust him today. We trust what he says. And here's the problem, when we, when we don't trust him today, this is where we start to fear. Maybe we fear our circumstances. We fear what's happening. And so what happens when we begin to fear circumstances, when we begin to fear people? It leads to things like compromise. It leads to things like bending biblical principles. And we start to make bad decisions. We make promises. And then just as quickly, we break those promises. It's where we begin to think things we shouldn't think, say things we shouldn't say, look at things we shouldn't look at, pursue things we shouldn't pursue, consume things we shouldn't consume. Why? Because we begin to not trust Jesus. Instead, we trust him. To trust him for salvation, for eternity, means to also trust him today. This is where the Jews of Nehemiah's day got in trouble because they didn't trust him today. And they begin to compromise. When we trust Jesus, we trust him moment by moment. We trust him step by by step. About a month ago, I went to, to Phoenix to be with my daughter who was having surgery, and so I, I flew down there. I got a rental car and uh, drove around Phoenix, crazy place to drive. And uh, next day, Abby had her surgery, and, and then I brought her back to where I was staying with a family and, and to help her kind of convalesce. And then the next morning, I went out and I, I needed to go uh, to the pharmacy for her. I was going to go visit my roommate from college and spend some time with him, come back, be with Abby. And this is my day. And as I walked out to the rental car, I kind of walked around the front and I looked at the car, and I noticed on the bumper of the car over on the right side, down to the bottom just a, a little apparently there was like a little piece of plastic covering the bumper and it was gone and there were some sensors underneath and so you'd have to understand me to know why at this point like my OCD just really starts to kick in and I'm staring at the bumper and I'm trying to imagine like I know that the whatever that piece was it, it was there yesterday and now it's not there today and I'm trying to figure out what happened to that I'm trying to imagine I'm trying to imagine what's going to happen when I get back to the rental car place right like I picture driving up and then there's an interrogation and you know what did you do with it and where did it go and then it'd be like well we have to replace the PO well we can't replace the piece. We're going to have to replace the whole bumper. In my mind, they're like, you're replacing half the car. It costs like $5,000 for a $3,000 car. Just in my mind, I'm kind of going there. So I'm driving down the road and I'm picturing all this happening. And so over the next couple hours, I visited with a couple different people and I heard all, you know, people were like, oh, well, just, you know, get some black duct tape, you know. That was the first guy. Just get some black duct tape put over there. They'll never notice it. Uh, somebody else said, you know, just deny it ever. Like, just say it wasn't there when I got the car. Here's the best idea. Somebody said, hey, when you take the car back, it's going to be in the evening, in the dark. Just when you drive in, just turn your brights on and they won't be able to see the front of the car. Don't worry, you know. So anyways, I'm driving down the road, if this makes sense, and I'm obsessing about this. And here's what I'm thinking. I, I, I've got to take care of my daughter. She doesn't need a dad who's all worried about the car. And I'm going to go see my old roommate from college. And he needs a little pastoral care. And I'm driving in. This is what I think of. I think of Philippians, right? Be anxious for nothing. Right? Be answered nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in that moment, I had to make a choice. Do I trust God or not? Right? Do I trust him? I'm anxious. Can I give it to him? Can I let it go? I had to make a choice. I was like, well, yes, God, I trust you. 
And so I'm going to let it go that way. I'm not obsessing and I can, you know, be the father Abby needs and I can be the friend that Kurt needs and not all. And so I did. That's what I did. I made the choice. Not saying it was easy, but I made the choice to trust God. That's what I'm talking about. Moment by moment trusting God. Now, actually, the end of the story is that uh, at the end of the week, I took the car back, and I'm like, just, you know what, just whatever happens, happens. I drive in. I'm driving in. I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe they'll be busy. No, there's nobody there, and I drive in, and there's two guys standing at the end of the, you know, come on in. I'm like, oh, man, I'm driving in, and they're staring at the front of the car, and I pull up, and I park the car, and I turn off waiting for the Inquisition. They both circle the car, come back to the front, stare at the bumper, walk over and say, how was your trip to Phoenix? I'm like, it was pretty good. And they're like, all right, the car looks good, sir. Sign me off and off you go. And that was the end of it, right? But I was thinking, again, so glad that I just trusted God in that situation. Like, I'm just going to trust him in this moment. I love it in Romans 12. It tells us this. Good advice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul's saying here is this. This really isn't primarily the worship God is looking for. This isn't it. The worship that he's looking for is what happens out there, right? And that this would reflect that. That as we live out there because of the mercy of God, because of what God has done for us, we are living sacrifices. This would have been very meaningful in a way that we can miss. Back in those days, back in the you know, New Testament, they had a temple and they would sacrifice. They would take animal, they would sacrifice the animal, it would be on the altar and it would be dead and it would be a sacrifice. We are living sacrifices. And as they say, the problem with living sacrifices is they want to keep getting up off the altar and going back and doing their thing. And what Paul's saying here is that we've we've died to ourselves. We're no longer our own. We belong to Jesus. We live for him. We die to ourselves. This is our spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but allow God to transform you by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect as we choose moment by moment to trust Jesus through the mercy of God. Every moment, every situation. And the third thing I have to mention is this. Just one more, because with Nehemiah, and this is the last point, with Nehemiah, you just can't not mention this, right? We, we, we trust Jesus alone. We, we trust him, right, moment by moment, and we trust him together. Because this is a big part of what we see in Nehemiah. Nobody did anything alone. They did it together. They needed each other to build the wall. And they needed Nehemiah to hold them accountable. In Hebrews 3, it tells us this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That means you were with God, but now you're turning away. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need people like Nehemiah. People like Nehemiah who, when they see us compromising, when they see us not choosing to trust God, that they'll call us on it, that they'll encourage us. We need those people in our life and we need to be those kind of people because, because if we're not careful, we can begin to drift away. I'll close with this. When I was 15 years old, uh, I became a Christian. I had never been to church. I had never read the Bible before. I had never heard the gospel before. I heard it. I became a Christian. I started attending church. So when I started attending church at 15, it was all new to me. Every story was new to me. I would sit on the edge of my seat 
every weekend listening to the sermon because I just hear all these stories and I hadn't heard it was everything was brand new to me and it was just so like you know I'd be like wow that that guy named David and Goliath and just every story was amazing and I would take notes and I would soak it all in now fast forward two years later just two years I'm sitting through a service one weekend, and at the end of the service, you've seen the doxology, right? And everybody gets up to leave. And as I'm getting up to leave, this guy comes and sits down next to me. Now, I kind of recognize him, but I didn't know him, but he's part of the church. And he sits down next to me, and he says, could I talk to you for a minute? I'm like, sure, yeah. What's on your mind? He says, well, you know, I noticed this weekend um, during the sermon um, that while the pastor was preaching, you really weren't paying attention and you were passing notes around and, and you guys were talking and making jokes and you, you know, got up and used the bathroom like eight times. I don't know what you're drinking, but you know, it's like I just, you're in and out, you're in and out, you're not paying attention. He says, I don't know if you know this, but this thing that happens in here, this is a sacred thing. This is an amazing thing. This is a gift. You're, you're privileged to be in here and you act like it means nothing to you. And I was, honestly, I was shocked. I, at the moment, I thought, I don't know what he's talking about. I love the word. I love church. And he just excused himself and left. And I sat there and I thought about it for a minute. And I thought, he's right. What happened to me over two years that I went from just loving every word that was preached on the weekends to just ignoring it? Well, I don't really know how that happened. I think I just got used to it and I, I started to take it for granted. But the thing was, I, I didn't even see it. And I remember as he left, as he got up and left, I remember thinking, I don't even know him, but I just thank God that somebody cared enough for me to sit down and point that out. So we need that in our life. That's what Nehemiah was. That's the kind of people we need in our life, and that's the kind of people that we need to be. So we come to the end of Nehemiah, right? There's sin at the beginning. There's sin in the middle. There's sin at the end. There's kind of a tension, isn't there? And I'm just going to leave it right there. I think it's a good place for us to be done. So that as we go from here, I want to encourage you over the next week. Now next week, we're going to kind of take an aside and talk about something else. And then two weeks from today, I'm going to be back up here and we're going to start a series in Matthew. Well, it'll be about the birth of Christ, but we're going to look at that genealogy and we're going to talk about the good news. But let me just ask you, When's the last time you thought about, just thought about the good news? When you thought about the darkness of this world and thought about how great the gospel is, how amazing the gospel is, how, how unbelievable it is that God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son and that he has drawn us to himself and we can be in here this weekend worshiping him. And as we move towards Christmas, we can be filled with awe and wonder over the, the birth of the Son of God. So I want to encourage you over the next week or two to just think about that, to soak that in, and two weeks we'll come back and we'll dive into that, that birth of Christ. Let me pray for you.